Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sermon and song. Thank you for that truth. I pray it resonate with us this week. Lord, I pray it would speak deeply to the situations that we find ourselves in. Lord, you know everybody in this room, and you know our immediate situation, you know our context, you know what's coming next. Lord, this applies. I pray that we would all trust you in this way. And Lord, even now as we center our thoughts on you and focus on you, I pray that we would look to you for answers, for the questions that we have, solutions to the problems that we face, a relief to the stresses or difficulties or, or pains that we're enduring, Lord, that we would cast cares on you because you care for us, that we would turn to you because you're there for us. We would trust you, the one who's ever interceding for us just even now. And Lord, as we open your word together here in just a moment, I'm trusting in the work of your Holy Spirit in accompaniment with your word to speak specifically and directly and very personally to each of us. And Lord, I ask that by your Spirit you would rightly diagnose the hearts of every listener today. And Father, that you would grant us by your grace the ability, the, the willingness, or even the desire to accept your diagnosis and respond rightly to your solution to your remedy, to your grace. So, Father, I pray that we would do far more than listen. People would do more than hear me. But, Father, we would all hear from you. And, Lord, we wouldn't walk away as if we have not heard or not seen or do not know. We would not be like someone looking at a mirror and walking away straightway, forgetting what he looks like. But instead, Father, we would be doers of your word. We would be doers of this word. So, Father, show us what to do that we might live the life that you intend us to live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at the end of 1 Timothy. We come to the conclusion. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is our text today. Just a few verses, 17, 18, and 19. And as I read this, again, I, I hope that your prayer will be somewhat for yourself like I prayed for you, that God would reveal to you what he wants you to hear, really in two parts, that God reveal what he wants you to hear and that you hear it, receive it, and do something about it. That you hear it, accept it, and do something about what God says to you this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age. Now let me just pause there for a second. As for the rich. So I'm going to do something different today than I normally do. Okay. So, because this passage of Scripture is speaking specifically to the rich, I'm going to dismiss everyone in this room who is not rich, okay? So, if you're not rich today, this message is not for you. So, you guys can stand and head for the exits. I'm giving you permission. You can get to the Cracker Barrel before all the Methodists get there. But, but wait, I see if you, Rex, sit down. Hold on, I got something for you here. I see you heading for the door. Just in case that was you and you were thinking about taking me up on my offer. If you've got $2,200 in this world, you're rich. I don't mean cash in your bank account or in your pocket. I mean in assets. $2,200 per adult would place you in the top 50% of this world. $2,200 in assets 
would place you in the top 50% of the world's wealthiest people. If you made $1,500 last year, how many of you made $1,500 last year? Unemployed students, you don't, we're not counting you, okay? We could ask you how many of you spent at least $1,500 of your parents' dollars. Okay, $1,500. If you made $1,500, you're in the top 20%. So no one's heading for the doors yet. If you have sufficient food, decent clothes, if you live in a house or apartment, if you have a reasonably reliable means of transportation, you're in the top 15% of this world's wealthy. Let's step it up a little bit. How about this? Do you have $61,000 in assets? Again, not cash, not available to you, not liquidity, but assets, homes, cars, whatever. You're among the richest 10% of this world. If you earned more than $25,000 last year, you're now in the top 10% of this world's income earners. If you have any money saved, if you have a hobby that requires any supplies, any cost, if you have a variety of clothes in your closet that you can choose from, if you have two cars in any condition, if you live in your own home, you're now among the top 5% of the world's wealthy. I see you're all still here. If you earn more than $50,000 annually, you're in the top 1% of the world's income earners. So at least we settle that right. This text is for everybody, or just about everybody in this room. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's talk about the responsibility of wealth for a moment, according to God's Word. Now what we've seen in this letter so far is... Paul's letter to Timothy addresses a wide span of believers in one church. You've got people who were poor and people who were wealthy. You had people who were free and people who were indentured servants or slaves. You have people who were uneducated and educated. You have people who came from Greek or pagan backgrounds and people who came from Jewish and religious backgrounds. You had such a mix of people that the only way that you could possibly attribute their coming together, that they could somehow become one organization, one entity, much less one body, one congregation, one family, is the work of Christ. Because only Christ puts people together like this who come from so many disparate backgrounds and situations. And so the testimony of the church, this compelling community of believers showing the work of the gospel that makes people brothers and sisters. And he's spoken already to those who were not wealthy, and now he speaks specifically to the wealthy. And what do we know so far from what we've seen in Paul's letter to Timothy? Well, just a few thoughts to give us a big picture overview of God's, God's view of wealth. First of all, we know that the Bible doesn't require, it doesn't endorse asceticism. You know, asceticism, denial of myself in order to make myself more spiritual, to go without certain things, denial as a means of being acceptable to God. Denial of things as a means of being more spiritual in the eyes of God or denial of things as a means of personal holiness. This is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it says if you are blessed materially, which is the sort of richness we're talking about in chapter 6, you're not required to rid yourself of it. 
but instead you're commanded to be grateful for it and you're even encouraged to enjoy it. Encouraged to enjoy it. I know sometimes the church's teachings on wealth seems to flip to um, another extreme. While you have the health and wealth and prosperity gospel on one side that makes riches as the ultimate end and the very purpose of Christ in your life to bless you materially, which is absurd and which is heresy. On the other hand, if we take it too far, we could begin to imply or even teach that Christ wants none to be, God allows none to be, God causes none to be or wills none to be wealthy. And that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, when we were looking at this earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we looked at this group of people who were ascetics. People who deny themselves certain things as a means of spirituality. Forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created. Instead, what does he say? We should receive these things with thanksgiving. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. There's a repudiation of that mindset. That in order to be right with Christ, I must deny myself anything good that God might give. In fact, God, as a good father, takes joy in being generous to his children. And you think about that even in your relationship. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you think about the joy that you give. Something switches somewhere along the lines in adulthood, parenthood particularly, at gift-giving times, whether that's Christmas or birthdays and things, where the pleasure begins to shift, not in getting things, but in giving things and seeing the joy of those things. Likewise, God takes pleasure in being generous to his children, and he tells us what should our response be gratitude, and we honor the giver by enjoying that which God has given. At the same time, though, we've seen God speak against self-indulgent living. Remember when we were talking about widows? Who are true widows in the church? Who should the church look to take care of and support and meet the needs of and watch out for? Who should those be? And we were given this warning in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. If you've got that widow in your church... And in her wealth now, maybe her newfound wealth or maybe her inherited wealth or her pass-on wealth or the wealth of her family, whatever it may be, now this widow, she's living a self-indulgent life. All she's living is for pleasure and luxury. No, that's not one that you need to be expending your time and effort for. In fact, it says she's dead while, she's lived, while she lives. She's not living the life that God has for her. She should not be a part of your ministry attention. So living a life of luxury, very clearly in Scripture, is never to be the aim of any believer. If your primary purpose in life is to get more, then that doesn't reflect the life of a believer. That doesn't reflect someone who understands the big picture, someone who understands their life in light of eternity. And he says, this is not someone that you minister to. So self-indulgent living is condemned. And we've seen in some of the texts we looked at before, just in the past couple of weeks, the lust for more, that, that almost insatiable drive to get more and more and more is a path to all sorts of unnecessary pain and trouble. I would say specifically to these high school seniors that are about to graduate. Whatever your aim in life is, whatever your degree pursuit is, whatever occupation you're after, if your ultimate aim is just to have stuff, to have money, that's an illegitimate aim. And I would dare say this, that's a waste of your life. Because one day you're going to have to stand before the Father who's going to tell you He created you for more than that. That that's not the intent. That's not worth living for. In fact, we've got so many warnings. Those who would pursue after this, what do we see? Those who desire to be rich... If that's your guiding priority, if, if, if that's the driving force of your life, those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation. Well, we all fall into temptation, right? 
Well, obviously, this is a unique sort of temptation. A temptation among those who are lusting for more, greedy for more. They're going to face a different sort of temptation that they don't need to face. That's, un- that's avoidable. They'll fall into temptation, into a snare. A snare is a trap. So many traps laid for those who lust for more. Many senseless and harmful desires. What does that mean? Senseless and harmful? Many? Because the lust for more only drives more lust for more. And we find that that which we thought would satisfy doesn't. There's always more. There's always more and more and more and more. He says this plunges people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You want to keep yourself faithful to the end, which is one of the great aims of this letter, one of the aims of, of our church together, is that we all be faithful to the end together. One of the ways that you avoid that. So avoid the lust for more, the love for money. We know the lust for more is a path of all, of all sorts of unnecessary pain. And also, dissatisfaction and discontent are enemies of the faith. We talked about Paul's example of contentment. I found the secret, he says, of being content in all circumstances. Paul, who knew what it was like to be brought high or be brought low, knew what it was like to have and knew what it was like to not have and to be deprived. In all of those, he learned something. He learned that God is supreme, that God is trustworthy, and that God is sufficient, that God meets my needs, that God himself is the one irreducible minimum of of my life, the one thing I can't exchange, the one thing I would never give away, the one thing I can't imagine living without. Take all these things from me, but don't take Christ, because on him I depend. So knowing then, as we've seen in Timothy, describe, not prescribed. He's not prescribing wealth. He's not prescribing poverty. He's acknowledging that these exist in one church, in one family, knowing then that among God's people, and remember this always, because of God's providence, because God's hand at work in our lives, there will be poor and rich. What does he say specifically to the rich? And again, the reason I share some of the statistics with you is I wanted to combat that tendency that some of us might check out and say, this is not for me. This is is not for me. This doesn't speak to me. This is somebody else. That that always seems to be the temptation when you're going through a text like this. Well, that's got to be for somebody else because I don't feel that way. I don't think that way. I want you to take to heart what God will say to you from the challenges in this text. And they're really pretty simple and really pretty straightforward. The first one is this. The Bible challenges us. God commands us to guard ourselves against arrogance. Against arrogance. That sort of pride that would attribute my successes solely to myself. That sort of pride that would separate me from other people that even subconsciously would suggest to me and would come out in my dealings with people, my conversations with people, my attitude towards people, that because of what I own, I'm somehow superior to you. This, I think, is the lure of name brands. This is the lure, I think, sometimes of luxury possessions. This is the lure, sometimes, of anything that can be labeled, anything that can be quantified. This lure of arrogance that now I am superior, now I am self-sufficient, Look at me for what I've done. In fact, he says just very, very emphatically in the text, charge them not to be haughty. Be haughty. If God has blessed you materially, how do you guard yourself against this pride? 
Because pride is an insidious thing that most of us never see creeping up in ourselves. How do we guard ourselves against it? Well, the text makes it clear. You remember who it is that provides everything. One of the cures to pride and haughtiness is practiced gratitude. Intentional gratitude. To be thankful for what you have. That's also one of the means to contentment that we learned. For those of us in this room that struggle sometimes with contentment, dissatisfaction, this burning desire to have more, this this equation we're working in our mind that I'll finally be happy when, this if-then sort of thinking, if I could get this, then I wouldn't want anything else, or then I would be satisfied, or or, then I I would feel successful, that if-then sort of thinking. What's an antidote? Intentional practice gratitude. You know the old song, right? Count your blessings. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Again, some of those stats I know can just roll off of our thinking like, like nothing. They're just, just water rolling off a duck's back, mean little to us. Yeah, I get it. I'm rich compared to that tribal person in Africa or India or, or that indigent person in the inner city and wherever. But no, consider what God has done. I think one of our great sins of omission is not practicing intentional gratitude. What has God done in your life? What has God enabled you to do? You say, you know, I'm a a product of my own hard work, my own ingenuity, my own efforts, my own labor, my, my own diligence. But who allowed that for you? Who gave you that opportunity? Who gave you that mind? Who gave you that family? Who put you in that situation? Who's provided for you in, in your life? You know, I don't say this boastfully, but one of the humbling things I, I've learned in just traveling to different places and meeting different people in different countries and cultures is the humbling reality that there are so many truly gifted, intelligent people there that are by no means successful as we would measure success. I wish I could show you a picture of my friend in India's home where I got to visit with him. and He wanted me to come and meet his children, two little boys at the time. And he invited me to his little apartment in the city of Aurangabad in India. Now, he's an engineer. He's as sharp as a guy as I know. I think of these high school students going off to pursue engineering, whether it's chemical or mechanical or whatever it may be, and those are sharp students. Those are tough degrees. This guy is a sharp guy, but he's not rich by this world's standards. He has a two-room house. It's about the size of my office. His his children sleep in, in little hammocks, from the ceiling, his, his wife cooks over an open flame in a little concrete, little brick, makeshift oven. But he's, he, we grow haughty over our wealth. We have to guard ourselves from that. And yet he's grateful at what God has provided for him. Guard yourself against arrogance by remembering the one who provides everything. And when I say everything, again, I'm not talking about he's the one that wrote the check. He's the one that made the deposit. I'm talking about he's the one that gave you the brain. He's the one that gave you the ability. He's the one that gave you the arms and the legs. He's the one that gave you the family and the school and the context, all those things. Be grateful for what God has done. Guard against arrogance. And as Job learned, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And yet, blessed be the name of the Lord. And maybe some of the wisest among us are those who have learned that lesson, that in seasons of drought, or seasons of blessing, God is God, and God is always good. Number two, he says, never misplace your trust. Now, this is one of those statements that's just super simple to write in a message and to fill out a blank in your notes. But this is one where you've got to dig down deep into your own psyche for a moment. What is it that you ultimately trust in? 
Now, I understand there are a lot of problems in our lives, a lot of situations that we face that can be remedied. I, I get it. I, I'm not immune to this. I, I'm one of you. That could be remedied if we had a little bit more money. Right? I, I get that. If you're sitting here today and your refrigerator broke last night and you don't have money to replace it, you're thinking, no, I, I, I can rely on the Lord, but what I really need is about $1,200 for a new refrigerator. Okay, I, I, I get that. I understand that dynamic. But I also have found this to be true through my own experience and my experience with other people like you. My experience as a pastor, my experience as a person. If every problem in your life right now, whatever it is, you define it, whatever your problems are, if every problem in your life can be solved with a check, with money, I will tell you, you don't have that many problems. Those aren't the biggest problems because the most significant problems in your life cannot be solved or rectified with money. There's somebody in this room today who's suffering a serious health condition. And if you could write a check for it, if there was an amount, you'd pay it if you could find a way to pay it. Some of you have some brokenness in your, in your marriage. And if there was a financial number attached to it, if you could just write it off, you could pay for it, you'd pay for it. If you could reconcile with a son or a daughter that you haven't talked to in years and there was a check that could accomplish it, you would do it. No, the biggest issues in life cannot be resolved that way cannot be addressed that way, nor can the biggest needs of our life be satisfied that way. And what we find is this, and if we had time for the testimonies running the span of our own economies, we would find that people have problems at all levels, and money doesn't change that. And what the reality is is this, some of us have misplaced our trust. We think that our ultimate fallback is what we possess. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be concerned and here's the worst expression of this, of misplaced trust. I don't have to pray because I've got resources. If you allow it to, the worst thing your financial blessings can do for you is to remove from you your daily dependence on God. To rely on Him is not a burden. To be put in a position where you have to rely on Him is not punitive from God. That's a gift from God. If God would put us in a position where we know every day, give me this day my daily bread. Think of the lesson that God taught the Hebrews as he was taking them into the land of promise. A simple lesson, a profound lesson, but simple in its nature. I'm going to feed you every day. And here's what I'm going to do miraculously. One day a week, I'm going to allow you to gather enough for an extra day because I don't want you working on the Sabbath day. That day you honor me. That day is holy unto me. And don't labor on that day. Make that day about me and worship. But every other day, you get up in the morning and you gather the manna that I've sent. And if any of you should get greedy or come up with this idea, this entrepreneurial idea, you know what? I could gather up all the manna for the week and then I don't have to do anything the rest of the week. Here's what's going to happen to it. It's going to spoil. And there are going to be bugs in it. And you're not going to be able to eat it. But every day, I want all of you, regardless of who you are of, or whatever you once had or hope to have, to get up every day and trust me. If that sounds like a burden to you, you misunderstand God. God was inviting them into this daily experience, this ritual, if you will, of receiving and responding, of being given to and being grateful for. And that deepened their trust in God, that deepened their affection for God, that deepened their sense of a relationship with God as a generous father. And so I challenge you today, don't misplace your trust. Your resources might be giving you today a false sense of security. 
Again, I'm not saying that we don't save up. I think there are certain things that Dave Ramsey's right about, certain things he's not. But I think having that fallback makes sense. Investing for the future makes sense. Being prepared for an emergency makes sense. Being diligent and careful and thoughtful about your resources, all those things make sense. But if your trust is what's in your account, if your trust is in your own resources, you have a very misplaced trust. And I will tell you this, though so this is, I'm trying really not, I'll try hard not to be political in today's message. And the craziness of the world that we live in today and the economy that we see that we're in today, I think there's just another reminder that we cannot trust on the uncertainty of riches. We cannot. But we can trust in one who is certain. And so our resources might give us a false sense of security, but the challenge from God's word is this. Set your hope on God. And not just in any nebulous sense. Yeah, I know we can trust God and all that. I know God's going to take me to heaven and all that. No, trust God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you forget that he's a good father who longs to give good gifts to his children? And do you forget that you have not because you ask not? And do you forget the promise that he's made to us? That if we'll trust in him, if we'll commit our ways to him, that he will establish us? That if we set our attention on him, if we seek him first, then he is free to bless us with all these other things when he is first. But when all these other things are our priority and our attention, God will not suffer idol worship lightly. He will not suffer wrong pursuits of his people lightly, wrong values, wrong ambitions, wrong energy. Direct that towards him. So trust him with all of your, all of your resources. And instead now, guarding yourself against arrogance, Trusting in the right thing, liberated now from pride in what I have or lust for what I don't have, here's the command. Here's the positive command. Leverage what God has done for you, how God has blessed you. Leverage those blessings from God for good. Let me say it again. When God begins to set you free from the haughtiness of wealth, the pride in what you have, or... Or maybe in addition to, sets you free from the desire for more, the love of money, the lust for more and more stuff. When you find freedom from those things, then you find what God has really promised. And listen to the phrase. I, I want you to, if you're an underliner in your Bible or even just in the notes that I've given you, underline this phrase, this promise at the end, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Okay, I'm, I'm going to lay out a bit of a spiritual conspiracy theory for you here, okay? The very thing that we think would make our life so satisfying and successful is a delusion. It's a satanic delusion. The idea that if I can accumulate more and more and more, that this is the aim, and the more I get, the happier I'll be, the more satisfied I'll be, the more successful I'll be, the better about myself I'll be. Everything will be better when I have more and more and more. Have you ever considered that the enemy of your soul would love to have you invest your life that way so that it's ultimately wasted and that you would never find the promise of the end of verse 19? That you would never find the wealth of generosity, the riches in giving. That you would never, though you could be as rich as you could possibly be, that you could accomplish all that you wanted to accomplish, have all that you want to have, and never discover life that is truly life. 
when I look at a passage like this, I have to remind myself that the commands of God are always for our good. I know whenever you talk about riches from this position, or wealth, or money at all, from this position, there always seems to be that hook at the end, like you're probably waiting for this to fall on you at some point in this message. So this means up your giving. We need more giving in this. Here are the funds you can give to. By the way, here's some opportunities for you to support the church financially. I'm not saying those aren't valid or necessary, but what I'm saying is there's something much bigger at stake here than the financial needs of this church or the ministries we support or even the missions that we cooperate with, our partners. I'm saying there's something here about your own life. God's offering you something that would actually make your life better now. You could really take hold of that which is truly life through generosity. This is what he's challenging us for. Those who do this, who leverage your blessings from God for God, discover that true riches come from good works. You want to really be wealthy? That's the contrast in this passage. Do you see that? The contrast is, to those who are rich in this present age, in this world that you live in, you see yourself as rich, or you want to be rich, which we saw at the end of the last chapter. Let me tell you what real riches is. You want to know what really life is? You want to grab hold of that which is really life? Instead of simply consuming every blessing that God gives you, figure out how you can be a conduit of that blessing for the sake of others. How you can use what God has done in your life to be an agent of a force for good. He said, I don't have anything to spare. What do you have to spare? And by the way, sometimes when we use that as our deciding point, I don't have anything to spare, we're missing the point of biblical generosity anyway. The question really is never, what can I spare? The question is always, what am I willing to sacrifice? And I would say it's not just about your dollars. It's about your skills, your abilities, your time, your other resources. You could be like me and say, look, man, I just don't have any more time. I'd like to do what you're saying. I mean, look at my schedule. I, I, it's written out to the margins here. There's no space on this page. I hear you. I'm not saying that you have spare time. I'm saying you might have to sacrifice something. You might have to take something off of that so you can put something better on it. Same thing with your, with your spending. I'm not saying you've got spare money. I'm saying for all of us, the challenge might be this. I might have to take something off that I am doing so I can put something better on. I might have to remove something that's self-indulgent, self-serving, or only aimed at the purpose of luxury so that I might add in something that's beneficial, something that's generous, something that does good. That's the challenge. And see, the enemy would love to convince you that real life is found in the opposite. And here God is making you a promise. Real life is found in that. Real life is found in generosity. You don't believe me? Listen to the words. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Benefits now, benefits forever. Benefits in the life you live now, benefits in the rewards that you receive in eternity. This is what God has promised. A few questions. Again, I pray that the Holy Spirit would provide the diagnosis today. I pray that you and I would receive the diagnosis that's given to us. And I pray that you and I would rightly act on the response necessary to deal with the diagnosis. Am I grateful? Am I generous? Am I doing good with what I have? I ask that third question for this reason. 
Sometimes I'll hear this answer. Sometimes I'll even think it myself in my own mind. I would be more generous if I had more. I would love to be generous. I've had people say it to me a number of times. I would love to do what you're saying. I, I would love to be generous uh, if I just had more. I think the answer to that is pretty consistent. If you're not generous now with what you have, you won't be generous then. If you're not generous with what you have, you won't be generous with what you don't have. Generosity is an attitude. It's a state of the heart. It's not a condition that can be quantified. It's an attitude that has to be qualified. Is this who I am? Am I grateful? Am I generous? And with whatever good that I have, again, this ties with counting my own blessings, how can I leverage what God has given me and be rich in good works? Be rich in good works. You want to be rich in the eyes of God? You want to be rich in God's sight? You want to be rich in a, in a way approved by the Father? Be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. That's what God wants from us. I want to close with just a couple of thoughts. I want to talk about the future just for a moment because the passage does allude to it. I mean, that he would say that in this present age clearly implies that there is an age to come. Would you agree? He says those rich in this present age. Now, there are a lot of lessons there which I won't take the time to teach. There are a lot of stewardship lessons in there. There are a lot of faith lessons in there. Be about being rich in this present age, which means that at least some of the riches that we have that we hold dear in this present age aren't going to matter much in the next. You realize that, right? Those, those things that matter to us now won't matter so much for us then. When we die, those resources no longer hold value. I mean, the very construction of heaven teaches us this lesson. Those things which are so critical to us now that we would do almost anything for, at least some of us, become so mundane in eternity. Streets of gold doesn't have the same value. And yet there is a way to do things now that has eternal value. But first of all, I want to ask you this question. Since there is an age to come, the gospel question here would be, are you prepared for that age? Are you prepared for that age? As I shared with the students, the seniors, just a moment ago, guard this deposit that's been given you. That deposit's the gospel. That's the only thing that guarantees our entry into the age to come, at least into the kingdom of God in the age to come. We're all going to be raised to judgment. Everybody, the Bible says that. We're all going to face judgment. But then what? Are you prepared for eternity? Again, are you, are you prepared? Do you know Christ? Do you have the greatest treasure of all, Christ? Do you have that wealth that cannot be measured, Christ? The wealth of forgiveness of your sins, the wealth of eternal life granted to you, the inheritance that you have in Christ is the greatest wealth. Do you have that? Are you prepared for eternity? And while I said that the standards of wealth are not comparable in that age, they're not. The rich won't be rich in the same way there, nor will the poor be poor, will share in the wealth of Christ. You can invest there. The economy is not the same. You know, what you would do to get rich here is not what you would do to get rich there. But you can, per the Scriptures, invest there. For anybody who, midlife and on, starts looking at their retirement, thinking about what they wish they had done, 
Here's a lesson that goes for every young person here. Start now. Don't wait till you're older. Start now. Start saving now. Put money away now. Put money in your retirement now. Let this compound for the span of your life. Don't wait. Almost every person who looks at their retirement with regret will say the same thing. I wish I had started earlier. How many of us will say the same thing spiritually? I wish I had started earlier. Investing in things that matter for eternity. Again, the standards of wealth aren't the same, but you can invest. How? With good works. Be rich in good works. Lay up for yourself a treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal. You can lay up wealth there by doing good here, by honoring Christ with what God has given you here. So the question is, am I preparing for the future? Don't wait till the end. And then I want to summarize with this, because so much of modern American pop theology centers around the idea of living the good life. The idea that Jesus just wants to give you the good life. If you'll trust him, you'll get all the things you wanted with or without him. But he'll give them to you. He'll give you your best life. I'm living my best life. I hate when I see people tweeting that. Somebody, you know, sitting there with an ice cream cone on the boardwalk or sitting there with an umbrella on the beach. I'm just living my best life. I hope not. I hope that's not as good as it gets for you. Because the only way you can live your best life now is if hell is in your future. But for us in Christ, our best life now is the one that focuses on life forever. And that's an equation I think we sometimes don't understand. It's a relationship we don't make. I'm not simply talking about do things now, though you won't understand the benefit or value, though you won't see the reward, though you won't enjoy any of the dividends. Do them, trust me, they'll be worth it in eternity. I'm sort of saying that, but not exactly. What I'm actually saying is this. When you live your life now, in light of eternity, not only do you get the rewards of eternity, but guess what? You get life now like God intends. It's not just the sweet by and by I'm talking about. It's the tomorrow and the next day and the next day that you get both. And ironically, if I only live for myself now and for what I want and for my own pleasure, I get neither. I don't get the enjoyment and satisfaction of this life and I don't get the rewards of the next. Basically, it's zero sum. It's all or nothing. What life will I choose? This is, this is the challenge. Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Would you pray with me this morning? Would you just bow your heads just for a moment to think about what God might be saying to you, what he's already said to you by his Spirit, what God wants you to do, ask him that question, what now, God? What now? What do I do with this? You have to do something with this. God's word is not simply meant to be understood. It's meant to be obeyed. What do you want me to do, God? Ask him. Father, show me what you'd have me to do. Listen, Christians, you struggle with that question and as you await God for his answer. Let me speak to anyone in this room who's not yet a believer. The specific text that you heard today is about wealth. But the bigger picture here underlying it all is what are you trusting your life with? What are you trusting your life to? What are you ultimately counting on? If your trust is in anything but Christ, there's only one possible outcome for you in life and in death and eternity. And that's disappointment. 
It's disappointment. You're cutting against the grain of God himself. You're cutting against the grain of your very creation. You're cutting against the grain of the very purpose of God in your life that you might know him now, follow him, trust him, love him, serve him, and then enjoy him and enjoy him forever. This is the intent and purpose of, of God for your life, to know him and to trust him with everything. And so I invite you today into a relationship with him that trusts him. God, I trust you as the only one that can take away my sins through Jesus' death on the cross. I trust you as the only one that can change my life and give me a new life through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I trust you as the only one who can grant me everlasting life by putting your spirit in me as a guarantee of what is to come. I trust my life, my future into your hands. I trust you. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. I want to know you. I want to be with you forever. Everything else follows that. If Christ is not your ultimate trust, none of this will make sense. And frankly, none of it matters. If you're not trusting in Christ with your eternity, if you're not trusting in Christ as the sovereign king of your life, if you're not trusting in Christ as the one who meets all of your needs, then do what you want. Earn what you will. Spend it however you please. Because in the end, the only thing that you're going to find is disappointment apart from Christ. It doesn't matter what your financial plan is. It doesn't matter what your savings looks like. It doesn't matter what your earning capacity is. It doesn't matter what your retirement looks like apart from Christ. It's going to be nothing. It's going to be gone. It's going to be over. It's going to be done. Listen, in Christ, in Christ alone, do we place our trust. Have you trusted him? Now, with your life and forever, with your soul, have you trusted him? If you haven't, talk to one of us when the service is over, either at this invitation in just a moment or as the crowd begins to dissipate back in the back at our next steps table. And Christian, I, I just pray that each of us will wrestle with what we've heard. God, what do you want me to do with what I have? That's the challenge. Have I allowed myself to become enslaved by it? Have I become greedy and self-indulgent? Have I made the focus of my life the pursuit of it? Am I guilty of the love of it? Have I become arrogant because of it? Do I have a misplaced trust in it? Father, show us not only what we need to abandon, but what to embrace. God, how might we do good with the good you've done for us? Show us. Lord, may we be obedient for your glory. Father, move in our hearts towards a right response to you. I pray today in Jesus' name.